HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, they are tuning in to Tech Bites, the show where we look at the intersection of food and technology, food innovation, internet innovation, data, web, apps, all kinds of things. There's a lot of food tech out there. Everything from apps to make reservations, and sometimes it's things you put into your grocery cart. And today we're going to focus on exactly that. We're going to focus on food innovations in the grocery store and online. Really, innovations in things that I would consider basic staples, eggs, bread, sausage, making something old new. We have today a great panel of guests to talk about what's happening in innovative food and what the future of food is. We have Nate Park, who is the Director of Product Development at Eat Just, and they are plant-based egg and chicken products. Nate, thank you for calling in very early from California. Thanks for having me, Jen. We also have Cara Nicoletti, who is the founder and CEO of Seymour Meats and Veggies, which is a great sausage company. Um, ironically, really great sustainable meat products to hopefully have people maybe eat a little bit less meat. And she'll tell us more about that and her strategy. Kara, thank you for calling in today. Thanks for having me. And lastly, you know, something that's pretty basic, you know, bread for a sandwich or a grilled cheese. We have William Schumacher, founder of Uprising Food. Um, and he has a really, really interesting 
bread product. And bread is something that's been in the supermarket forever. It's one of the oldest foods around. And it's also kind of fraught with a lot of different uh, bad reputation, good reputation, controversy in the dieting and nutrition programs that are popular right now. William, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jen. So over time, there have always been innovations in food products. And I think things that are notable about the food innovations that are happening now in this time, say over the course of the past 10, 15 years, is we have added elements to what a good food product means beyond the actual thing that you're eating. Up until fairly recent history, something that was good and innovative meant it was just tasty and delicious and better than, you know, its competitors. But as time has gone by and, you know, people become more and more aware of things that are happening in the world, um, how food is produced has become a very important idea, how it's produced and how that production impacts the environment and our natural resources how the people who produce those things are treated, um, paid, what their quality of life is, how those foods are transported from point A to point B, the supply chain, transportation, uh, carbon footprint, all those types of things. I mean, the list of um, things to be interested and concerned about and vetted in the food choices you make every day is a long one. And after almost a year of the COVID pandemic, People have spent a lot of time becoming informed because we have more time in front of our computers. People have also become aware of how difficult or easy it is to get food when they encounter perhaps empty grocery store shelves um, because production plants have perhaps closed down and international commerce has stopped. People are also maybe aware of what the conditions are of people who are working in factories, in meat processing plants on the industrial level when we read about the COVID outbreaks in certain places um, because of how people are maybe not being protected. So it's a great time to look at innovative food and um, look at what some of the choices are out there, what people are doing to push forward and um, maybe, you know, add a little something new to your grocery list. So with that, we'll start with Nate Park, who is a part of a company called Eat Just, and they've been around since 2011. They started off as Beyond Egg in Hampton Creek and are now Eat Just. Their initial focus is plant-based eggs, a liquid product that you would buy in the grocery store and make, you know, egg scrambles and things like that, a cooked folded product that kind of looks like a, an omelet you would get, and then a sous vide. And they've just recently also launched chicken in Asia, which is very exciting. Um, Nate, thank you for joining us. And, and how long have you been with Eat Just? You come from a culinary background, so you are unusually a food guy and not a tech guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A food guy, uh, born and raised. I grew up uh, in, a, in a grocery store environment. So I've been around food a long time. Uh, I've been a chef uh, over 15 years now. And uh, I've been with the company uh, about six. So as a, as a product developer and, and now the, uh, the director of product development, to, to your point of, uh, you know, the, the mission and how, how we've started uh, here at Eat Just and our, our approach, um, you made a lot of good opening points there in, in terms of how we're looking at the world now. Uh, it seems like everyone's looking at it through a little bit of a different lens. 
uh, luckily at Eat Just, we, we've kind of been doing that for a while. So while I am the quote unquote food guy and I, I kind of attack things that way through through the, the lens of delicious, if you will, uh, it's always been a little bit of a company mission. Well, not a little bit. It's always been the company mission to you know, help environmental impact, to uh, help lessen the uh, overbearing, you know, uh, cage raised animals to, um, you know, it, whether it be for the animals, for the environment, that's always been an element of what we do. Um, but make no mistake, we, we want you to love it and we want it to be delicious first and foremost. One of the interesting things about so many of the, you know, new, new food innovation products, um, they often, you know, have a lot of people in them who are um, certainly evangelists of the mission, who are interested. There's a lot of tech people and product people and things like that. Do you think there's a difference in the way you approach creating a plant-based, you know, animal product because you do have a grocery, butcher, culinary experience? Do you think that that's a, a critical piece in terms of making it be what it's supposed to be? I believe so. I believe so. I, you know, the thing of it is we can get very deep into the weeds in terms of, uh, you know, how we approach the development of these new products. Um, you know, what do we want cultured chicken to look like? What do we want a plant-based egg to feel and act and look like in the pan? Um, of course you want it to, you, you want it to feel and look as much, uh, as, as a normal, as a consumer would expect it to. Right. Um, I, I just believe your average consumer, honestly, they don't care. They want it, they want it to be delicious. They want it to hit a price point and they, and they want it to be somewhat familiar. Um, we eat a lot emotionally. So we have an emotional attachment to things that either we liked as a kid or we, we, we understand from family. Um, we want that experience to be the same. So certainly, you know, when we talk about the, the deep dive into, in, into the tech of the eggs themselves and, and the functional mung bean protein that we're using to allow us to curd like an egg um, or to use as a scaffolding in a, in a hybrid cultured chicken product, you know, that's all fine and good, but your average, your average consumer would say, well, does it taste like chicken? And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, so in, in that sense, we, we have to approach it from a, from a stance of delicious, even though it is incredibly technical to get there. So it's, it's that, it's that age old idea of something should look effortless, even if there's a huge amount of work behind the scenes to get it there. And certainly in the food world, in the restaurant world, that's the case. You want people to sit down to eat something and, and not Absolutely. have any idea of how much work or how many people had to, you know, come together to, to make it happen. One, one quick question. Um, well, actually, let's, let's, let's roll into Seymour Meats and Veggies. Cara Nicoletti is the founder and CEO. She is fourth generation butcher. She is a woman butcher, which is a topic <laughs> entirely probably for a whole other show. Yes. Um, and her company is such an, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting idea of taking the best um, you know, sort of most sustainably and ethically raised meats and putting them into sausages with a lot of vegetables. So in a, in a strange way, she is a vegetable forward sausage company. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is actually how, how we describe ourselves. Um, like you said, I've been in the meat industry my whole life. I was raised in the meat industry. Um, and I really threw myself into the 
you know, whole animal sustainable meat movement a little over a decade ago um, after working in restaurants for a long time and just observing how meat was handled on a large scale and just the amount of waste that happened with it, uh, the carelessness. Um, and I was, I was very, very frustrated with the fact that I was, you know, working with these gorgeous pastured, carefully raised animals and my customers were coming back six nights a week and eating way too much of them. And there was no way for me to keep up with that demand. So I started trying to make them veggie burgers and they wanted nothing to do with it. Um, and <laughs> I, so I, I took those vegetables. I started sneaking them into my sausages, um, to kind of just make that product a meat reduced product. And also to make the good meat that we were working with stretch further, um, you know, I, I believe in the power of regenerative agriculture so, so much, um, but we have to lessen our dependence on meat in order to make it the norm. So we're really, we're creating not just sausages. We started with sausages um, because, you know, that's that's what I was making for the last decade, um, but branching into other products too that are a mix of meat and vegetables to really uh, lessen our dependence on meat. I don't believe that you have to give it up entirely, um, but also to get that good humane meat to more people um, and not just make it sort of a prohibitively exclusive, expensive product. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're really focused on, on uh, reducing people's meat consumption because realistically we know that they won't give it up entirely. Okay. It, it also reminds me a little bit of... Um, some of the cookbooks or recipe ideas for parents who are trying to get their kids to eat more vegetables <laughs> by sneaking it into something so they're not aware yeah. of it and they're just it's, eating it. You know, the cauliflower pizza crust, putting exactly, vegetables yeah, I, into like a banana bread or something. And it's yeah, like, oh, it's, you love this. It's chicken parm sausage, but exactly. it has a ton of vegetables in it. Yeah. I mean, I would say the difference is we really celebrate the vegetables in ours. We're not trying to, you know, when I started doing this, I really was trying to kind of trick my customers. Um, but over the last decade, I've really watched um, customer eating habits change. And I didn't really have to, you know, by the end of that decade, um, the vegetables were really a selling point, which was a very cool thing to see. Um, I think people are on a mass scale, much more conscious of their, their meat consumption and trying to lessen it. So that's been a great change. And when did you start your, when did your business officially open for sales? So yesterday was our one year anniversary. That's so, amazing. Yeah, yesterday was our one year, one year anniversary of launching. We launched uh, exactly right when, almost exactly when the world shut down. So that's been very interesting. But yeah, we just hit one year yesterday. Congratulations! They thank you. They the uh, business pundits always say that the first year of business is the hardest. Yeah, so and this one was really extra, <laughs> extra, extra challenging. Yeah, so if you've hung in there for a year, that that bodes well for the future. I think you yes. get exponential points for moving forward. <laughs> I hope so. The newest business that we're talking with today is Uprising Foods, and William Schumacher is the founder. Um, he has a really interesting bread product that is gluten-free, that is a superfood. Um, it is paleo-friendly and keto-friendly if you're a person who is following a really specific nutritional program. And it is kind of based in a, in a sourdough idea. It comes in a cube. It comes fresh. It's soft. You can slice it. Um, I've had it. It's actually a, a bread 
thing. It's a bread-like thing, not something where it looks like bread, but it winds up not having that texture. You can absolutely make toast and, and a grilled cheese sandwich with it. And it's bread. I mean, I think um, there's nothing more essential or more fundamental than bread. It's one of the original foods from, from you know, 20,000 years ago or something like that. I have to go back to the Nathan Mirvold bread episode to confirm. William, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You are the newest uh, company on our panel, um, and you started very recently. And while you don't necessarily come from a food background, you have a very personal uh, reason for starting the company. Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, I came from the consumer products background. So, so the thing that I'm most passionate about is really fixing food systems for the masses. So my heart behind Uprising is I want to make pinnacle health lifestyles available to everyone. So we are all the things. Yes, we're paleo friendly. Yes, we our bread is low carb. Yes, it's that. However, what I'm trying to do is make those types of lifestyles so simple that they are just packed into your bread and then make those products available and affordable to the masses. So the world I want to live in is a world where, you know, potentially someday you could walk into a fast food restaurant, you could have an uprising bun, you could have just eggs as the as the egg component, and you could have a vegetable infused sausage and have a breakfast sandwich. And, and really everyone could have access to those types of lifestyles through the most basic fundamental staples that people subsist off of. And like Nathan, we believe the same thing, that the, the key is you cannot compromise on taste. So yes, there's folks out there who, you know, they don't have a choice on whether they can have uh, gluten in their bread or not, or they can have carbohydrates or not. However, we want to make it so that you are able to access that nutrition in the staples. And you started your business most recently. When did you officially, and you are currently um, direct-to-consumer online. Yes. When did you officially go online for sales? Yeah, so we actually uh, sold our first loaf in March of 2019. Um, so we, we had a little bit of uh, e-commerce head start before the pandemic. Um, and we, we shipped all, to all 50 states from the very beginning of the business. However, obviously, as soon as the pandemic came, that really totally changed the game for us and created a, um, a, a, a key domino in the market where people now were saying, hey, I actually want, I would prefer that you bring this food directly to my door rather than having to go in the grocery store and get it. And then you also changed production locations at the same time. Yes. Yeah, we, pull, we pulled off quite the sequence of events um, uh, in 2020. We grew so fast out of the gate that we um, had to move bakeries very quickly and move our production. So we started here in Cincinnati, where I personally live and where my co-founders live. However, we outgrew our infrastructure and we moved our uh, bakery to Detroit and now we uh, bake our bread in downtown Detroit. Uh, and one of our missions outside of our primary mission is, you know, create more jobs. Um, our products are extremely hard to make. So you cannot make these uh, with mechanized processes. 
Um, so there, there's still a heavy component of artisan um, methods to the baking process. And that's an interesting infusion of what we do. It's, it's very um, old school baking secrets combined with new school science and techniques. Hmm, that sounds like sourdough meets calcium alginate or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. <laughs> well, one thing that I find interesting as a through line um, between all of the businesses is the importance of accessibility. And accessibility has become such a critical idea over the course of the last year. And I think accessibility means a lot of different things, doesn't it? It means, you know, actually being able to acquire the product and put it onto my family's, you know, dinner table. And in that acquisition, it's the supply chain, it's transportation, but it's also the price point. And, you know, at some point, um, you know, in our collective food lives, the best quality ingredients and things and most helpful things became the most expensive things. Um, you know, it is almost more expensive to eat a completely uh, vegetarian diet if you're shopping at the green market than it is to go to the grocery store and, and you know, get some chicken and um, hamburger. So, you know, when we talk about accessibility, all of you mentioned accessibility for people. And I, I, I think we're not talking just about distribution, but we're also talking about a price point. How as, as business, uh, as business people, you know, with a, with a PNL sheet to consider, how are you able to, you know, make that adjustment to make your products accessible to the greatest number of people? Because that's sort of the driving point of all your businesses also. The more people who can have your products, the better the domino effect is and, and, and the greater the return. But how do you do that with products that, you know, are at this point, take so much time and care, you know, labor and ingredients to make? How do you, how do you get it to people? Gosh, I would say that that's been the, the biggest um, hurdle in this scale up for me so far, because you know, when I was hand making these for a decade, part of the value prop was that vegetables are less expensive than meat. Um, and they are less expensive when you are the one peeling and chopping and cooking and, and processing them. So, um, you know, once once we went to scale up and we had to outsource all of those things to a different co-packer, the vegetables became more expensive than the meat. So um, it that was a big, a big learning curve. Um, and it's also a really fine balancing act because it's really important that everyone in our supply chain gets treated with dignity and paid the right amount. So we don't want to be shorting anyone. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we fight against is that meat was sort of made to be, we were made to expect that meat should be really cheap. Um, and it definitely shouldn't be. But um, at the same time, I was very frustrated with selling to the same demographic of people who could kind of like afford to care about where their meat came from. Um, and that's something that I really want to change. So for me, the answer is fillers, which were kind of a dirty word in the sausage industry. But um, now, you know, that they're fresh, fresh vegetables, it's, it's less of a, a dirty word. I think for us, it's just going to come with 
scaling and more buying power and being able to sort of get those price breaks on larger buys. But the goal very much is to be a mass market product so that we can help improve everyone's meat consumption uh, and not just the people who can afford to care about it. Nate, Eat Justice is a company that's looking at a global marketplace. You just launched sure. Chicken in Asia. How do you, how do you, and you, but you're also a much, much larger company um, in terms of the valuation and the resources that you have. But, you know, yeah. I, I'm sure your R&D process is not inexpensive and I'm sure, you know, it's not just necessarily as easy as, you know, running down a, a delivery list for, you know, getting some stuff and then putting it together. So how, what's, what's the philosophy about how you work within the production and the price points to get something like this to the greatest number of people? Sure. Well, I, I would agree. I would agree with Cara from the from the very beginning. We we kind of look at it as, you know, the more hands that you can you can get the product into, the uh, the easier the scale, uh, the easier it is for us to drive our message and and to and to really share this with the world. Uh, the better off we all are, right? Um, so that 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 is the difficulty. Scale is always the difficulty. And as in terms of R and D, we. We have an entire team of people that are constantly, every single day, looking for ways to make opportunities of scale cheaper. Um, you know, when I started with the company, there was 35 or less people in the entire space, and it really was an R&D-driven sort of uh, venture at that point. You know, can we create this egg? Can we create any of these other products um, that makes sense. And, and, you know, are they fundamentally as good or better than, than what's on the market that, you know, are we driving in the right way? Well, when you finally stumble upon that, now you realize, oh, wow. Uh, you know, once again, as Carr said, it, you, you make it yourself. I make a lot of things by hand and, and we may give it out for a sample, but it, it's a, it's a completely different sport in terms of trying to scale that up. So, um, it's, it's, it's a process and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we, we constantly, uh, we had to shift as a company. We, we, we turned from that R and D model a little more just to production, just for that. Um, which, you know, it, it we certainly didn't leave the R and D roots behind, as you would say, we, we did just launch, uh, the very first cultured meat product in Singapore in the world. Um, it's a, a chicken nugget, which is, uh, based on, on our cultured meat system. Um, but there again, you know, we have an entire engineering team that, that works on, uh, functional mung bean protein development daily. Uh, and, and I've utilized that actually in, as the scaffolding for, uh, our hybrid chicken nugget for the first meat that we've launched. So there's a little bit of crossover that has to go in, in into that process when we start thinking about magnitudes of scale, just to try to keep things, uh, in a range that, that makes sense. Um, also, you know, and eat just, we, we kind of pride ourselves a little bit on the fact that we, we move quickly. We want, we want to make an impact and we, we want to open the door and enable others to actually jump in and jump on board. Um, because we're, we're not disillusioned to think that we're going to do it all by ourselves, but we certainly want to help, you know, plant a flag and say, you know, this is a direction we can go. Uh, and, but in terms of the marketplace, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to feed, I'm, I'm from a small town in the Midwest. If I'm, if I'm trying to feed someone there, you know, if they, if they want just eggs, they, there's a couple of things that really kind of hit that, that, that point and it's really price point and, and taste. 
uh, if I'm limited on budget, it, it, it better be good or otherwise I don't want to waste my money on it. So uh, we are constantly in that battle and we have just recently dropped uh, the the price point of, of just eggs just for that reason we we want everyone to 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 eat and to enjoy that process but certainly magnitudes of scale uh, and, and our approach to that has made that possible so William you've already scaled up once uh, which is great and I mean your whole philosophy is bringing you know this superfood bread to the masses how do you how do you scale that and keep the price down and keep driving the price down yeah so um the this is the thing I am the most passionate about in our mission is how do you get that price that top end price point down 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 and just absolutely drive it relentlessly to the floor so that more people can access it because you know like Nate said that is its taste and its price point and, and you know that really determines how many people will accept your product want your product desire your product so for us the first thing that we the first domino that needed to fall, which, you know, really has helped us in the pandemic was to get the pressure of retailers out of the equation. So yes, direct to consumer e-commerce is amazing because I can literally make it accessible as in I can deliver it to every door in the U.S. However, it also releases me from a pressure that most food companies have to figure out how to navigate and a lot of consumers wouldn't know this, but the way it really works is, you know, when you are doing business with retailers, you are accountable to deliver, you know, deliver growth in the top of their um, profit and loss statements as well as the bottom. So what that means is those retailers ultimately need the total dollars sold in their categories, so like the bread category, as well as what they take to the bottom line to constantly go up. And a lot of those are publicly held companies. They have you know, huge management structures that are totally organized around profit. So a lot of the things, they just it's organized to deliver a certain growth result. So here at Uprising, what I said is, hey, I know how that works. I don't want to go that path. I want to go the path of direct. So what that allows me to do is say, hey, I don't need to, I don't need to design this product at a um, price point where it gets marked up twice once to the retailer and then once to the consumer. I can actually take less margin because I don't have a third party in between who I need to account for their profit and loss statement. So that was the first part. Be direct to consumer and be direct to consumer as long as we possibly can so that we can build up that economy of scale. And the second part of it is, hey, the ingredients that we work with, so nuts, seeds, and fibers, these the supply chains that support them have not been built up over thousands of years to the level of scale that the grain-based supply chains have with the singular goal of make wheat as cheap as humanly possible. And so what we are doing then in parallel is going back to the ingredient suppliers and say, hey, there's going to be a fundamental different recipe for products that are going to have a huge demand in the future. We need you to buy into this vision that Uprising is creating and start giving us discounts now so that when we are able to offer this to the consumer, we can give them a better price, better price, better price. And the last thing is there's always a moment that every business comes to when they, they do successfully pull off that negotiation 
with their suppliers. And now you have a choice. Do I pass the savings on to the consumer or do I take it to the bottom line? And for us, what we're focused on is we want to make just enough margin that we can be safe and healthy and continue growing and building the company. But we're going to pass as much cost savings on as possible to the consumer. So you know, part of it is just facing that choice and saying, hey, people who started with us, who have been subscribers, who are loyal to this cause and understand this vision, we're going to keep bringing your price down. We're not going to, you're not going to get just a discount for going on subscription over maybe over six months or a year of, of uh, being with us. You're going to realize, hey, they just renegotiated prices. They came back to me and said, oh, now your loaf of bread is going to be a dollar cheaper or 50 cents cheaper. So it's an intentional focus on making this platform of food that we're creating fundamentally better priced and better tasting than our competitors. And then using that economy of scale to make it accessible to more people. It sounds so simple, just making different choices or making, I'm not going to say, I don't want to say the right choices, but making choices that follow a philosophy or a goal, Um, not just consumers when they're making choices about what they want to eat, but people who run businesses making choices about how they're going to do that. We're going to take a quick break and find out what company made the choice to support this show and Heritage Radio Network. Did you know that we're a 501c3 nonprofit? We are kind of like public radio. We've been around for over a decade, and we keep the lights on and the mics hot virtually with support from our members, who are mostly listeners like you, grants, and underwriters like this one. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good, I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. We are talking about food innovation that you can have on your dinner table right now. You can taste the future of food. We are talking with Nate Park, Director of Product Development at Eat Just. They are a plant-forward egg company now entering into the chicken game. If you want to check them out online, their website is ju.st, and you can find them on social media at Eat Just. 
We also have with us Cara Nicoletti, who, Nicoletti, who is founder and CEO of Seymour Meats and Veggies, the plant-forward sausages, which is, which is sort of like one of those jumbo shrimp oxymorons, but <laughs> sounds like a great idea. You can find them online at eatseymour.com and on social media at eatseymour. We have also William Schumacher, the founder of Uprising Foods. You can find them online, uprisingfood.com and at uprising underscore superfoods. You know, egg, bread, and sausage, pretty basic things, things we all know, things that are really familiar, um, things you may be eating right now or later today. One of the interesting commonalities that all of these companies have is trying to make a very familiar, much-loved product at, in a way that will have uh, impact for the planet, the people, and the future. And they're all kind of attacking it in a different way. But it all comes down to choice, how businesses want to run, what types of products they want to use, how they want to uh, treat their staff and their partners. I think it's worth noting that throughout the pandemic, each one of these companies is ha had been set up to function um, in a production and transportation way that was almost outside of the traditional uh, food, food chain, which allowed them to continue to really be successful and keep product moving while many uh, other, you know, large scale meat production companies and, and things like that were, were forced to kind of close down. Kara, you had mentioned something about that um, in, in the past few conversations that we've had, which is such an interesting idea that you had structured your business in a way prior to the pandemic that allowed it to continue during. Yeah. Um, you know, we were sort of uniquely poised to tackle what happened during the pandemic because uh, part of the reason I wanted to scale up so badly was that I wanted to not just get good meat to more people, but sort of attack the whole system from the inside. Um, I think the pandemic exposed a lot of the very ugly, dirty secrets of the meat industry that, you know, I had known my whole life, um, but I don't think the general public was aware of. And one of those um, it was certainly like human rights issues within the co-packing plant, the meat packing plants. Um, that was always something that really bothered me in my decade plus as a butcher, you know, even just sort of the glorification of like butchers and farmers love that, have no issue with that. But there's sort of this whole swath of people in the middle who are really making your food and transporting your food. And um, they just get completely forgotten about uh, and, and are often treated really, really badly. So when I was uh, starting the business with, with my partners, it was a huge topic of conversation, sort of how can we operate outside of those systems? Um, and it's really hard to do in the meat industry because really the entire system is run by three large companies. So we worked for almost two years to find co-packers who um, were treating their employees with dignity and uh, sort of went down the line to every leg of our supply chain, you know, who's making the bands that go around our sausage packages, who's 
doing our trucking, who's making our dry ice, and just really, really got to know everybody in that supply chain um, and set up a system of kind of scorecards to ensure that those people were operating in ways that we were aligned with. Um, So when the pandemic hit, we were working with all through our supply chain, people who were really poised to to handle it in a, a much better way. They really cared about their employees. They were very safe. They shut down when they needed to shut down. Um, and what that resulted in was, you know, our on time in full was like 96% throughout the pandemic. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's it's crazy. I mean, that's amazing even in a non-pandemic time to have a exactly. 96% yeah. rate. But during a global pandemic where yeah. the food supply chain is absolutely broke. That's yeah. and really, really impressive. I mean, I think it it just, it in some ways, it just sort of furthered our value prop, which is caring about the entire supply chain or one of our value props. So um, yeah, it was, it was not easy. I'll tell you that it was not easy, but our, you know, we're a team of eight women and we are all incredibly close with like every single person in our supply chain. So um, I think it just makes us, it, it really helped us through the pandemic. It's such an interesting uh, result, one that wasn't intentional, but sort of really shows the rightness of the choices that you were making, that you were able to withstand, you know, a a global crisis in that way, just because, you know, people were making better decisions initially. And, you know, things were moving, you know, moving along in a a different way. Talking about choices also, you know, consumers have a a lot of options um, and a lot of choices to be making. You know, something um, that a question that I would pose to all three of you, which is a question that I've asked uh, many times on this show over the course of the past year. Right now, we're in such an unusual moment where, you know, consumers are challenged with basic accessibility can I find food today in my grocery store? Can I get it delivered to me? Um, How am I actually getting the food that I'm going to eat today? Um, And that question maybe has not always been so easily answered. Um, We also have had, again, a a huge uh, moment of awareness and understanding um, and, you know, sort of shining a light on a lot of the issues about where our food comes from that range from environmental issues and human rights issues and, you know, what sort of the company scorecard is of, of many of the producers of our food and people have a choice. How do you think consumers are making their choices now? Do you think, you know, on one end of the spectrum we have, can I just put it in my shopping cart and get it home? Or can I just order it to my door? Um, is, is the environment then take next space? Am I more concerned now about, you know, human rights issues? Where do you think consumers are in the spectrum of all these really critical ideas when they're making choices about, you know, what's for dinner. William? I'll jump in. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, I I think it's all the things. Consumers want it all. Um, And I don't blame them. (laughs) So I, I, you know, there's a constant um, balancing act of really what do you prioritize? So I see it as kind of like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the pandemic opened us up to, wait a minute, if you don't have food, what are you going to do? Uh, or if you feel unsafe going and gathering your food, what are you going to do? Are you going to pick a different brand? Are you? Are, is this going to fundamentally change your behavior? So absolutely, first thing is like, can I even get access to food? You know, we've talked a lot about access. 
then the question becomes, what type of food do I want once I have access to choice? And from our point of view, we think that, that consumers most prioritize in our space health. You know, what are the benefits of this food to my ultimate overall health equation? And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we're doing things with our food that um, people don't even necessarily highly value. Like we are, we are working at the fiber, the gut health level, making a very unsexy macronutrient, uh, taking that and making it delicious and, and accessible at super high levels in bread. So, we, you know, that is, we, that is not the main reason why people buy our bread. However, that additional health benefit, people are really valuing once they see that in their, and they're able to experience that in their daily life. So absolutely, the health benefits for us is what we see rise to the top. However, once you've got, once you, you as the consumer believe, hey, I've got my health in check. Now you start asking the companies and the products you buy for more, more, more. How about less packaging? How about more sustainable? What's going on behind the scenes? So it's a constant, how much can we value, can we add to these products, these services, this company, such that our most important stakeholder, the consumer, says, hey, we really value what you're doing and we want you to continue on as a business and we will continue having a relationship with you. Nate, how does consumer choice drive your work? I mean, I know from sure. you know experience in the food and restaurant world that when you're heads down, you know, working on R and D, whether you're in a restaurant trying to figure out the best puff pastry recipe, or you know, in your lab figuring out what the mouthfeel of that chicken nugget is. Right. <laughs> right. No, no, that's that's exactly right. And and I, I think to William's point, I, I agree. I think that I think that everyone. You know, uh, nowadays we're starting to look at things. You know, we look at labels a lot tighter. We look at where the source is coming from uh, a lot closer. Um, but the my instinct as a chef still, I rely on the fact that it, it has to be delicious. We still eat emotionally. Um, you know, we eat with our eyes first. That's an old expression, but that but that's true. It's because it you your your brain immediately says, yeah, I want that. I want to I, I want to try that. Uh, we approach all our products that way. We we think that it's absolutely necessary. Uh, it's it's first and foremost um, on the priority list in terms of uh, how, if we really want to grow our market share, the best thing we can do is is just put something delicious in their face, right? Like that's a, that's the that's the simple answer. Uh, now, being in almost twenty thousand points of distribution, and 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 certainly we're sourcing from around the world these days to try to keep up uh, with the ever growing demand. Uh, it, it makes it difficult. It makes it difficult to, you know, maintain that, uh, which is, you know, a daily battle that, you know, our R&D department goes through of, of, of trying to normalize different varietals of beans, different sources of protein, how they're all processed and how they all come together. And at the end of the day, your consumer, once again, just wants to know that when they grab that bottle of Just Egg, it hit a good price point. It's where they want it to be. You, you know, they put it in the pan, it scrambles like it should and it eats like an egg. And, th- and that's really where they... That that is our focus daily, and you you would think that that's a, a you know it's a relatively easy thing. You do it once, you just continue to stamp it out. But uh, you know, food is always a living, breathing thing, and and there's constant change and 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 difficulties with that. So um, you know, trying to normalize that when it comes to magnitudes of scale, this was much much easier when everything was handcrafted. 
Um, now we hit this point where there's a certain expectation in the marketplace. And, and as I said, once you hit these large points of distribution um, to really maintain those repeat customers, uh, it, it's a, it, it's really important for us to, to maintain the delicious factor, I guess, for lack of a better understanding. Just a side question, um, you know, to, to Nate and, and to William, um, I, I can't help but think about the era of the, of the molecular gastronomy and, you know, the chefs who were doing, you know, the fantastical wizardry in the kitchen, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the bygone days of people like Ferran Adria at El Bulli and Heston Blumenthal at the Fat Duck or Grant Ackett's at Alinea, where they were using chemistry, um, you know, different, you know, agar, agar, calcium alginate, you know, sure. different things like that to create uh, different versions of things or new experiences, you know, caviar beads out of, you know, mango juice or, right. you know, jello that won't melt in hot broth or, you know, all these kind of just fantastical, crazy things. And it was really met by the f- international food community with, with applause and applause and applause. I mean, these restaurants are some of the um, top, top, top tables in, in the world, you know, for generations. Is there a big difference between, you know, you doing, Nate, doing the work in the R&D kitchen to say if one day Fran Adria walked into his, his kitchen at El Bulli and said, I want to make chicken out of mung beans. Let's see what right. we can do. Right. Because you could no. imagine, you could have <laughs> completely imagined something like that or, you know, him walking in. He actually had some like very unusual um the um, sponge bread foam that they made in the microwave, I think it was, William, and it was kind of like a bread-like product that did not have any bread in it. Yep. Um, one of the famous recipes. Is there a big difference between, you know, that type of, you know, sort of culinary alchemy and investigation and creativity to create something new or different or a version of something that looks like one thing but is another? Is there is there a big difference between... You know Heston Blumenthal in at, at the Fat Duck, and you know making a a plant based chicken nugget. Nate, you want to go first? I'll add on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I, the short answer is no. Uh, you know, as a as a chef, I started in Chicago, and I, I worked at a restaurant, uh, Moto Restaurant, uh, for almost five years in that family. And uh, Chef Cantu, that that you know that was his charge as well. You know how how do we invent? How do we create? How do we utilize? hydrocolloids and everything basically in the book. Um, but not just, you know, leaning on these ingredients and, and, and this new technology of, of food production. Um, but, but, you know, ingenuity and creativity and how do you apply that in a new way? You know, the funny thing is, is that a lot of, a lot of the things that we, we shoot for, um, you, they call them dupes, which I think is kind of funny. But at the end of the day, what what we really want is we just want the experience to be the same. So a lot of the processes that we go through, while you know ingredients may be unusual, uh, part of the SOP of actually building and 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 developing that process may be somewhat novel. Uh, there's always an element that, you know, and, and I'm sure William could probably speak to this as well. There's always an element of, of real bread making that, that just in that process, regardless of, of how cutting edge the bread is he's making, there, there has to be some process of, of, of somewhat normalcy that, and so it really is a matter of, you know, finding these new angles and understanding how these ingredients work 
first of all. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of people that just throw a lot of things into a formula and hope for the best. But really understanding how those, those new products, um, ingredients can interact with the, with the old school uh, methods. And, and how do we craft that into a way that feels familiar uh, and, and really helps gain that emotional attachment? So, yeah, there's not, there's not much difference between Hesta Blumenthal and, and the scaled up version of, I, I would argue, all three of the products that we're talking about today. I wonder if that would change people's perception about adaptability or trial or something like that, at least in you know, the, the uh, demographic of people who know what these restaurants are and the people that we're talking about and are interested in pursuing those types of cutting edge dining experiences. It's an interesting idea. Um, William, what, what would you say? I, I would say that the biggest thing that is different is just how hard it is to scale things to the volume that, you know, Nate and Kara and I are trying to achieve. You know, the, the, what it takes to bake something for a night's dinner for however many tables you have in your restaurant uh, versus what it takes to do it for literally millions of people. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, the restaurants we're talking about would have maybe, I don't know, 50 diners a night. Yes. Right. yes. Maybe a hundred. Maybe a hundred, like in right. groups of 30 or something, five right. nights a week, no lunch. You know, I mean, completely different scale. Yes. But the consumer's expectation of consistency and excellence is not that far different than at that restaurant. So what they're expecting every single time a just egg comes up, you know, comes into their home or um, an uprising bread delivers, their their level of like I it's got to be amazing and it's got to be exactly the same if I've had it before is not that far off versus if you're going in and paying you know a lot of money for an in, uh, amazing restaurant experience but what it takes to do that at the two levels of scale behind the scenes is way different now at the end of the day we are all experimenters and scientists and you know, chefs in some respect, whipping up something awesome that is a creative thought brought to life. But then that scale piece, that's where, to me, the two roads diverge, but they come back with the same level of consumer expectation. Yep. Yep. That that would have been uh, what I thought. And you're so right about consistency and scale, which is why um, these restaurants remain tiny little, you know, jewel boxes of very limited experience. We are really out of time and um, so many things to talk about. And I want to close the show um, just asking each of you, you know, it, it's difficult enough sometimes um, in business to uh, predict what the market's going to do and to make a game plan going forward. Certainly as entrepreneurs and founders, that's always challenging. I cannot imagine a more challenging time to be trying to uh, forecast and predict for business in a food product than today. Um, we have so many unknowns in the world right now. Um, but I am going to ask <laughs> to each of you, um, both internally for your own organizations, what do you see coming for the next six months, the next year, um, and then within, you know, the food product category, uh, you know, do you, do you see a trend? What do you think is going to happen? Do you see something building? Do you think there will be a shift? Cara, how are you, how are you trying to plan for 2021 and beyond? 
Yeah. Um, well, so first, just internally at Seymour, we're, we are working on expanding beyond sausages and doing um, all kinds of other meat products that are under the same umbrella of, you know, less meat, but not meatless. Um, and just continuing to improve the quality of our meat and our vegetables and the storytelling that goes with them. But in terms of, you know, zooming out and looking at what the foodscape is going to be like, I think, you know, there's a huge plant-based craze going on right now, which is really exciting to me because I think that the future of food is going to be a blend of, of sort of the traditional and the the, the new, um, which is kind of what we're trying to do at Seymour in one product. But um, my hope is that we don't try really hard to replace one thing completely with another, because I think that's where you get in trouble with monocropping and all that kind of stuff. But um, that the future of food is, is just kind of a combination of a lot of different things. Nate, what are you all looking at over at Eat Just, uh, aside from, you know, plant chicken world domination? <laughs> yeah, this year, actually, we, it, it's it's super exciting. We've, um, we're have we rolling out our, our third version, actually, of, uh, of our liquid egg, um, uh, a lot closer to characteristically to the way that eggs cook and, and feel and actually taste. Uh, as you mentioned earlier in the show, we are launching a sous vide product this year, which I'm incredibly excited it's about because very during, molecular during, gastronomy very molecular gastronomy sous vide <laughs> yeah it, it, it very much is and uh you know during this uh pandemic the ability to to craft that in in what i call the home lab or also known as my kitchen um uh, it, you know it, it allows us to still push on 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 these magnitudes of scale so it's good to it's good to you know launch new products even even though we, we are going through the through the pandemic uh, that's a focus, obviously, of this year. Uh, our fold uh, folded product, which is similar to an egg patty, is uh, is, is uh, pushing into uh, the QSR space, hopefully this year and on multiple fronts. And then I would have, you know, I would have to say the the biggest thing that I'm excited about and pushing forward for next year and this year uh, is the fact that you know. Uh, the, in Singapore, we now have the ability to um, sell cultured meat products, and we've we uh, we started a dinner series with uh, one restaurant there, uh, very artisan, very handcrafted at this point in time, as as we talk about scale. Um, but more importantly, if we talk about you know, the rest of the food industry and and how I see that change, just opening the door to cultured meat products, uh, there's a there's a host of companies that are out there uh, pushing in this same sort of space, whether it be seafood or uh, beef, pork, turkey, it's across the board, it, it's happening. Uh, so for us to kind of get our feet wet with the with the chicken, we did years of due diligence with the Singaporean government to, to get us there. But I, I believe that that little chicken nugget, you know, it may be small, but it kicked open a pretty large door that uh, should make a, a, a pretty big dent going forward in, in the years to come. So we're super excited. That's funny. A small little chicken nugget that kicked open a big door. <laughs> right. right. You should talk to the marketing department. <laughs> William, what's in the fu- what's in the future of 2021 for Uprising? So uh, similar similar to um, the, the other two folks, we are looking to bring more products to market. So we just launched uh, chips and, you know, within the health space, that sensation of crunch is deeply primal, deeply psychological. It's something you really miss if you're giving up things. 
Um, and so we've invented an amazing chip that's made from nuts and seeds and fiber that is truly crunchy on the jaw. So we're excited about that. Um, we launched. With I can attest to the crunchiness as well as the <laughs> saltiness. Salty crunch, I think, together is is definitely a target. Yeah, so it's, we're very, very excited about that paired with our bread. You know, two fundamental things that people desire, especially when they're trying to live a healthier lifestyle. They will often miss them if they're having to give them up. We want to make a lot more flavors of chips, things that are nostalgic, things that, um, you know, people just love that they've been used to, but they've been told they have to give up. We're going to bring those things back. We're going to make them clean. We're going to make them, you know, pinnacle ingredients, all of those things. So we're excited about that. And then um, on the access side, one of the things that we want to do later this year is unlock the ability for people um, who have less means to be able to somehow get delivery of our product. So what we're looking for is, you know, how can we partner with food banks that are servicing food deserts? We have e-commerce delivery. We can put it directly on a doorstep. Can we, you know, can we integrate our payment system so we could take, you know, government assistance as a payment form? Could we subsidize it with, you know, like it would customers be willing to put some money in the pot? Could we put some money in the pot? So we want to pioneer, you know, just at very small scale. How do we prove out this model that you can actually take uprising quality nutrition and get it down to a, a price point and a delivery total cost to deliver it to a doorstep? where it actually makes sense and show people that there's fundamentally a different way forward, even if it's, you know, very small scale in 2021. So that's a great idea. Something maybe like the Tom's model, buy one, give one. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, that sounds like we have some good, delicious things um, on the horizon, which should make everybody happy and hopeful and maybe a little bit hungry. I want to thank Nate Park, Director of Product Development at Eat Just, um, for joining us. You can find them online at ju.st. Cara Nicoletti, Founder and CEO of Seymour Meats and Veggies. You can find them online, eatseymour.com. And William Schumacher, Founder of Uprising Food. You can find them online, uprisingfood.com. You could order one of each and have like Tech Bites Food Innovation Breakfast, like scrambled toast and sausage. That sounds really good right now. I also want to thank our production crew, everyone at Heritage Radio Network, our sponsors, and especially our listeners. Without you, we'd be talking into the void, and that's no good. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Find us online, heritageradionetwork.org, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. I'm Jennifer Leutze, and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.